Well, thanks everyone for joining us uh, this morning uh, for the Flashpoint podcast. Uh, we are doing it at a different time uh, today, as as you have noticed. Um, just a little kind of morning economic doom and gloom uh, episode here, joined by my friend George Pierks. Um, and we are going to be talking about uh, the looming recession, or is it looming? I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll have George kind of explain this stuff. Uh, if you've been paying attention to the economic news uh, that's kind of been trickling in, it's been kind of seeming like it's not that great, uh, but to, you know, to lay people like myself, and I'm sure to a lot of you, uh, it's kind of difficult to know exactly what's going on and exactly how to interpret this information and how to interpret uh, the, the like the specific uh, numbers and 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 news and and you know what's the CPI and what's you know what's the what do the interest rates really mean? What does it really mean when these rates get hiked, et cetera, et cetera? So I'm glad that we have. George on, who is an expert and is able to explain this stuff. So, uh, George, uh, global macro strategist at Bespoke Investment Group. I should have mentioned that before. Uh, so thanks for being with us. Uh, how's it going today? How are you doing? I'm doing fine. A little bit of rain here, uh, but my uh, Charlotte football club beat Chelsea last night in, in penalties, so I'm happy about that. And, um, yeah, you know, got to focus on the bright side because the economic backdrop these days has been pretty negative. <laughs> yeah, so let's 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 jump into this. I, you know, I remember. I think you started really talking about this, um, and and George's uh, uh, Twitter is really active with this stuff, and he also uses Twitter Spaces. I, I think. Do you get? Do you guys do like a? Is it a weekly, a monthly? Um, we do. Um, yeah, so we do Twitter Spaces. Myself, uh, Skanda Amaranth, who uh, covers uh, the economy for. I think tank called employ America and Connor Sen, who's a Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg columnist. The three of us do Twitter spaces, uh, for the employment situation report, which is the big Bureau of labor statistics release each month. That's the first Friday after the end of the month. And it's at eight 30 AM. We start like eight 15. So we do that. And then we do the CPI report. CPI has been really important lately for markets and for the economy. So, um, we, we break down those sort of in real time as the data hits and, and provide some content text to those numbers and some details. So yeah, those are the ones to look for. And um, I always host them on, on my Twitter spaces um, uh, at perks on Twitter, P E A R K E S. Um, and you can find them there. Yeah. Just like, just like the profile here. Um, yeah. I think, why don't we start with CPI and, and then I think we'll go to uh, employment and, and, and some other stuff after that. But um, for those of us who, who, who aren't so familiar, can you explain uh, the like what CPI is and and what it is about it that is so important at this moment and like what that kind of means uh, for the economy as a whole because it does seem the way that you've been talking about it and I may be interpreting this incorrectly but the way it, it seems to me that the way that you're talking about it like this is giving a warning and people need to pay attention to this is that is is that right? So okay, what is CPI? What is inflation? Um, 
inflation in general just refers to the aggregate price level of all goods across the economy. You can measure this a bunch of different ways, but basically it's, it's how much does stuff cost? Um, so if you can, like, it's easiest to imagine this as like a very simple model where you've got, I don't know, guns and butter or something like that. If the price of both guns and butter go up by 10%, then inflation is 10%. Um, if you produce equal amounts of guns and butter and um, the price of guns goes up 10% and butter is flat, then inflation is 5%, right? It's the average sort of weighted average price across, you know, all of the economy. Now, uh, the way policymakers tend to think about inflation is focusing on consumer prices. So the prices paid by consumers are generally viewed as more important than the prices paid by businesses. Um, there are a bunch of reasons for that. Um, but the, the key thing is that we care more about households than we do about, about businesses and households are the ones that are actually doing the consuming consumption is what ends up as being counted as economic activity, whereas intermediate activity isn't. Um, so, so that's sort of what, what matters for, um, for in, in most economics, uh, Important. So, and, and you can measure consumer prices a bunch. There is the personal. Out there. We care more about households um, because households are where like final demand for goods and services comes from, for the most part, as opposed to businesses who are just meeting final demand. So, you know, we don't really care about intermediate input prices as much because those will kind of get passed on. And what what the people who are buying stuff to consume it end of the road for that production process, that's where like that's what really matters. And also households are more politically important than businesses because households vote and businesses don't. Um, so, yeah, so we, we tend to look at, at consumer inflation more than we look at intermediate input uh, good inflation. And um, yeah, in, in, and so in the US, there are two big ways of looking at it. There's CPI and there's PCE. Um, PCE is published. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a more complicated way of looking at, at the underlying um, prices. And it's um, published at a lag. Uh, it's probably a more realistic way of thinking about things, but um, it you know doesn't get as much attention as CPI, which is used for a bunch of official government um, uh, procedures and, and, and sort of gets all the attention. Um, so CPI is, is basically, it, it measures what households spend money on. It breaks it up into a bunch of different categories and weights them by the amount they're spending on them. And then it measures directly measures. Like they literally send people out to check prices, changes in those underlying categories of prices. And then that gets aggregated up to one big index. And then that index is the rate of inflation that consumers face. Um, there are some caveats to this analysis and it can get a little bit complicated, but, but that's basically it. When you hear someone say CPI, um, they're, they're, they're measuring a broad basket of consumer spending on goods and services across the economy. Uh, and high inflation is damaging for a bunch of reasons that we can get into, but um, that's been the big concern with CPI recently is that inflation has been very high. Well, yeah, we've been hearing a lot about inflation um as as you know kind of a political issue and as you know as an as an economic indicator um what what is it about inflation right now that should be concerning to people to people that that maybe like you know media and politicians are not exactly talking about like what is it about inflation that is being missed but is you know uh of outsized importance if, if that makes sense 
Yes. I just think in general, there's sort of two ways to think about inflation. Like, like if you have inflation that's running, um, you know, that's rising quickly, let's say that inflation's rising 5%, but incomes are growing faster than that. That's not a problem. Like that's that, you know, that is never a problem just as an, as a random abstract number. The problem comes when inflation is rising faster than um, either either very fast and like accelerating and totally out of control, regardless of what wages are doing, which is not really happening right now. And then the other side of it when it's bad is when inflation is running higher than, than consumers' um, incomes are rising. So we have a situation now, right now, where um, basically the the inflation accelerated really dramatically, um, mostly because consumer demand was really strong and because supply chains were fouled up. We then had, you know, an expectation that supply chains were going to work themselves out um, and that, you know, companies would figure out how to operate in a, in a COVID type environment. And a series of things got in the way of that. And it's starting to free up, but we're not quite there yet. Um, but you know, we haven't really seen wages like soar and continue accelerating in a way that would, that would indicate that that's why inflation is rising. So, you know, we're, we're not in either scenario right now that is really concerning for inflation. In my opinion, we're not in a situation or sorry, we're, we're not in the situation where soaring inflation is being driven by like wages being really, really high and, you know, um, inflation like accelerating out of control. This is called a wage price spiral in the language of economics. And it's genuinely a bad thing. We don't, there's not really good evidence for that happening right now. What there is evidence of is that inflation's high and it's, it's running faster than households' incomes can keep up with. And that's bad because it means that households aren't able to spend what they need to on basic um, needs uh, that they're trying to meet, whether that's um, housing, food, you know, uh, consumer goods, gas, like whatever, whatever thing. Um, budgets are really stressed right now. And that's and that's not an ideal situation. Right, because if, because there's going to be ramifications uh, from that, right? Like there's um, every every kind of cut into that spending uh, will make things a little bit tighter. I, I guess I'm kind of curious uh, where it's kind of like a, is is it like a chicken or the egg thing? I mean, it it, it seems like we have. Um, we have, you know, gas has been going up. Gas started going up a couple months ago. Um, I mean, it's been going up for a while, but like really started jumping up. Groceries have been, uh, groceries have been um, going up for a while. I mean, this is, uh, this is like a pretty good example of, of, of kind of just this almost like this slowly, this slow creep of this expanding inflation that is now seems to be really hitting um and i'm i'm kind of wondering what you're seeing on the employment side it does seem like that has 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 been pretty good uh but i am curious as to where where i guess you see those two kind of connecting together and and how they how they affect cuz it like like yeah. if inflation is going up but but the employment situation is not that bad like that that's not as you're saying like that's not the worst possible outcome right yeah. Well, so I, I think, yeah. So the reason that we've seen so much food inflation and so much energy inflation is all on the supply side of the economy. In other words, like we've had a bunch of oil, um, energy supply taken out of the global economy and that's had a huge 
that because of the Ukraine war, that's had a huge ripple effect across a bunch of different um, crops, uh, other agricultural inputs like fertilizers, um, you know, crude oil, uh, refined products. It's all sort of rippled through. So this is what's called a supply shock. And it's really different from a demand shock. Right. Like we had part. The reason inflation initially was pretty strong was because consumer demand was really strong. Now, consumer demand isn't strong. Like if you look at especially for something like gasoline, like if you look at the amount of gasoline that's consumed in the U.S. every week and these numbers are published on a weekly basis, you can see them almost in real time. Um, we're well below where we were in 2018, 2019, 2020 or sorry, 2018, 2019 um, and some weeks below 2017. Uh as of like the most recent weeks. So like, you know, gasoline demand is not particularly strong, but the price is way up. And the reason is the supply side. So like, that's also the same thing has also happened in in supply chains, right? Like supply chains have broken down. It's not because demand is really high um, anymore. It's because because the producers can't get stuff out the door. And so, you know, the 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 primary institution that manages inflation in the United States is called the Federal Reserve. Uh, they set interest rates um, and have a, a three-part mandate. Only two parts of it are typically used um, to describe their mandate. Typically, they need they want stable prices and full employment. Um, that's, that's their official mandate. Um, so, you know, that's how you link those high inflation and and unemployment and and sort of job market numbers. Um, we had a white hot jobs market uh, right after the COVID pandemic hit. Strong consumer demand, lots of people not working for a bunch of different reasons, um, meant that there was just really really strong wage growth, really strong uh, hiring, you know, very low uh, unemployment for people that were looking for work. Uh, that is now starting to reverse because the Fed is looking at the problem of of high inflation and saying, okay, well, we need to raise interest rates. That will cool inflation. You know, prices are unstable. Um, higher interest rates should lower demand, which should, you know, reduce the price pressures by lowering demand equal to where supply is. Um, at the same time, you know, what that's going to do is raise unemployment. The Fed understands that they are raising unemployment to reduce inflation pressure. So in their head, and, you know, we can have a, we can sort of discuss why this might not be the case, but in the head of the Federal Reserve, they're making a trade-off where we want more people to have not have jobs so that inflation is lower. Um, and that's a trade-off we're willing to make right now. And that's what we're starting to see. Um, unemployment claims data has been rising for the past three or four months. That's a really good real-time indicator of, of where labor demand is at. Um, you know, we had about 251,000 people file for unemployment claims last week uh, after seasonal adjustment. That's the highest number since Thanksgiving of last year. And it's, you know, the latest in a series of increases. So clearly, like, we're, the Federal Reserve's policy is having an impact, um, but it hasn't um, yet reached the point where we are in an active recession, um, you know, and, and we can define a recession too, I guess, if, if we want to pause here, I've sort of been on a bit of a monologue. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. So, so why don't, uh, I, I do have a question for you on the other side, but I, I guess that why don't you, why don't you define what you mean by recession first, and then we can, we can go back to employment there, uh, in a second. Um, cause I do have a couple questions about that, especially about, you know, the feds decision on this, but, um, well, yeah, I mean, you are talking. We we are talking about recession a lot. Uh, maybe it's good to define some terms. So, yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so a recession in the United States is defined as a broad contraction in um, consumer spending, um, business activity, and and labor markets. Um, that is judged by a, a body called the NBER, the National Bureau for Economic Research. Um, you know, they they look at a panel of monthly data and say, okay, is this, 
in aggregate on peak or off peak. And if it's declining, like if it's off peak and declining persistently, then you're in a recession. Uh, recessions by that definition last anywhere from a couple months, which was the shortest ever U.S. recession recorded. Um, this, you know, when, when COVID hit, we went into a two month recession before the economy started growing again, um, two years, uh, the, the recession that lasted from the end of 2007 to early 2009 was a good example where, you know, you had a recession where the, the bottom was over a year after the top. Um, the longest U.S. recession, I believe, was uh, 43 months, uh, which was from 1929 to 1933. And that obviously, you know, that that was a, a catastrophe. Um, so, yeah, um, it's I think the earliest date that the NDER will pick as the start of a U.S. recession would be July. I'm skeptical that that will actually be the the, the date. But all the indicators that we tend to look at, whether it's um, financial market indicators, whether it's um, the underlying trend in economic data, it's all pointing towards a, um, a decline in economic activity that would be consistent with the U.S. recession. And how long do you think that this one would last? I mean, it's it, because it is kind of it's been so unstable over the last couple of years with the pandemic and then with, you know, like things like uh, just exploding after that. And now we're in this situation where things are contracting again because of this decision. Uh, well, in part because of these decisions by, by the federal government, by the federal reserve. Um, it, what do you think we're looking at? I mean, do you think that we're looking at some kind of a long-term thing or just a slight dip while things cool down and then it'll go back up? Uh, obviously maybe that's a bit of an unfair question because that's such, that's a very large question, but um, just like your general sense as somebody who follows this stuff, uh, what, where do you think we're headed right now? Right now, households are in a really good financial position. There's huge balances of cash um, fueled by fiscal transfers from the COVID period uh, that have made their way onto household balance sheets. And households also have relatively manageable debt levels. Um, you know, if you look at, for instance, mortgage debt, if you look at um, student loan uh performance and, and how student loan debt is evolving, um, things look a lot better than I think people would typically assume. Um, so if the households, if households are in a pretty good financial position and the federal deficit, you know, um, even widens a little bit again, um, it's, it's been narrowing very, very rapidly over the past year um, as COVID relief programs roll off, um, you know, we could have a very, very shallow and modest recession. I think the problem comes if supply side problems continue to be high and, and we continue to have the sort of disruptions that we've seen um, since, uh, since COVID hit and the Fed, you know, we have a recession that doesn't see inflation come down. Um, then the Fed just has to keep tightening until until there's a really, really deep recession. And that's sort of what happened in the 1970s and 1980s. So, you know, the Fed in the 1970s basically saw a period of very high inflation that they weren't able to nail down. And the thing that really that really finally broke the back of inflation and, and, and there are some in, in the short term um, was the fact that they took Fed funds, you know, north of 15% in the early 1980s and just crushed economic activity. And when that happened, inf inflation started to drop and it stayed, it, it continued to fall and stayed low for um, decades after that, for reasons that go beyond the Fed um, that 
get deeper into political economy. But, um, you know, if, if we have if we have a thing where inflation continues to to run high, even if we see consumer demand drop as we would in a recession, that's going to be really grim for the Fed. And they're going to have to keep rates high and keep hiking rates, even if economic activity is contracting. And that's sort of the risk. I don't think that's the most likely thing. I think what's more likely is that we see, you know, a, a modest recession, like think more like, um, you know, one of the 1960s or 70s recessions, as opposed to like 2008, 2009. Um, you know, we won't have a massive debt blow up, um, the, like at least not on household balance sheets. Um, you know, business balance sheets have also been firmed up dramatically in the post-COVID era. So, you know, having like a, a very long debt bubble unwind type recession like we did in 2008, 2009, 2007, 2009 is, is very unlikely. Um, I, I think the concern is that, is that real activity gets crushed by high policy rates. And I'm not, I'm not so sure that that's going to happen. I think, I think we will see um, prices start to moderate, especially if consumer demand falls a lot because, um, you know, we're already seeing prices start to moderate and, and indications that things are getting better. Gas prices are a really good example. Um, so as of today, um, wholesale gas futures are trading at like, uh, let's see here. They were around three, yeah, 311. Um, they traded about a 40 or 50 cent spread to retail two weeks ahead. So basically, you know, we, we could see sub $4 a gallon um, national average gas prices in short order. Um, you know, they're down dramatically from peak. Um, you know, we're seeing refiners, um, or sorry, we're seeing this, the, the premium between crude and refined products start to drop. We're seeing better performance and lower shipping rates, bringing stuff in from other countries. Um, we're seeing crop prices start to fall because harvests have been stronger than expected. So we're seeing like a bunch of stuff that's surprised to the upside as far as like having good inflation outcomes. And hopefully what happens is that we have a, a very mild recession. I think it's pretty much locked in that we'll have one at this point, but we'll have a very mild recession. The Fed will ease back, inflation will come down, and then we'll sort of get into a more equilibrium economy that looks more like 2017, 2018, 2019 on the backside of that into 2023, 2024. Got it. Chris, uh, Chris in the chat asks if you can expand on your statement about student loan debt. Chris says, I assume less is being added, but no one has been paying for well over a year. And that's, again, scheduled to end soon. Um, and, and yes, it is scheduled to end soon, but it has been scheduled to end soon for a number, you know, on a number of occasions. So who knows uh, if, if it really will end. But but uh, yeah, what, what, what's what's your, um, would you like to expand on that a little bit and just kind of uh, let people know exactly what you're talking about there? Yeah, so we had we we had, I had been on previously, and we had talked about student loan debt, and I think I think student loans are are a really complicated area to talk about with like one liners. So I probably shouldn't have said what I said. What I meant was that credit performance um, on student loans has been strong, um, and you know, of course, that's going to look better when when um, student loans aren't required to be paid. Um, but in general, the the debt burden that households in aggregate have from student loans is more manageable than I think gets credit for. Um, the median student loan borrower um, has, has a lot less student loan debt than we tend to think. And so, you know, while there are definitely some instances where people have extremely high student loan balances that are frankly unconscionable um, and they'll, you know, have a really hard time paying off in less than, you know, kind of 30 years type thing. Um, and, you know, student loan debt is a weight on, for instance, household formation or interest in the housing market or whatever. Um, you know, 
I'm not trying to paint like a totally rosy picture here, but what I'm saying is that in aggregate household balance sheets um, and, and the people that have student loans are in better shape than you would think based on some of the more outlier statistics around student loans and um, around, you know, some of the, some of the more dramatic uh, borrowing stories that again, really should never have existed in the first place. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you uh, about, uh, you know, we, we, we've been talking about employment, uh, Quite a bit that uh, that panting in the background. Everybody is my dog. By the way, it's very hot here. Um, uh, so, you know, we we've been we've been talking about employment, and um, you've been talking about unemployment ticking up. And this is you know a, like a direct consequence, right, of the um, of the decisions uh, taken by the Fed to to kind of manipulate uh, uh, interest rates and, and to use that to uh, to drive inflation down. Uh, I guess I'm curious, like, like what people should be taking from that decision? Because I know that I, I know that a lot of people, at least a lot of people who I talk to in my world and in, in, in my kind of uh, progressive lefty uh, sphere um, and, and, and people who I talk to who, you know, are are working people uh, are not very happy with this and feeling betrayed and feeling like once again, uh, the federal government, uh, because kind of like, you know, encompassing all of it together, right, uh, has made a policy decision that is going to have, you know, deleterious effects on their lives. And so, yeah, I guess I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, what what do you think should be said? Uh, what, what, how, do, how should people be thinking about this? Um, if there's any positive way to possibly think about it? And um, I mean, because the trade-off really does seem to be like, look, like less inflationary prices, uh, but maybe you know less employment, right? I mean, like that does seem to be like the trade-off that the Fed is 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 making. Um, and and they're obviously not doing this like personally to anybody because they don't think about things like that. Although maybe they should, but they don't. Like they're just they're thinking about this in a more big picture kind of thing. Uh, but, but yeah, just what 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 do you think about these decisions and and how people are feeling about them? Yeah. So uh, again, to to reiterate, sort of where the Fed comes at this from, there they have a mandate, um, an explicit mandate in, in U.S. statute to pursue stable prices and full employment. And sometimes those two goals contradict because the tools that the Fed has to uh, change either employment or uh, prices are very blunt and. Um, they're focused entirely on stimulating or repressing demand, right? So stimulating or repressing aggregate willingness to spend on stuff. Um, and they can do this through a bunch of, it's very complicated how this, how this works out in practice, like the specific channels it follows. But at the end of the day, what that looks like is either conducting or halting or reversing asset purchases, um, which is commonly referred to as QE or quantitative easing. It's basically expanding the Federal Reserve balance sheet it's um, the the what that does in practice is it takes um, a supply of uh, of long term bonds and turns them into bank deposits. If you're a household, you had a long term bond, now you have a bank deposit, and that you know basically forces you to either spend or 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 take more risk with that money. Um, the other thing they can do is they can raise or lower interest rates. Um, as far as like their current policy, what what they're doing around around their balance sheet is 
pretty reasonable and not the end of the world, I, I think we can basically skip over it as a major factor in what's going on. Um, where they're being much more aggressive is interest rate policy. Uh, so they had made promises during the COVID era to keep l- rates low for long. They were worried about repeating the last recession where there was a very long, slow recovery. And because the fiscal expansion, um, you know, because of stimulus checks, because of expanded unemployment benefits, because of PPP, because of other uh, transfers from the federal government to the private sector during the COVID era, when that happened, um, that made the economic rebound much stronger. And the shock from COVID was less persistent than people thought. Um, you know, so basically a lot of people just sort of learn to live with the virus, um, for better or for worse. That's kind of the reality on the ground in a lot of the country. And so at the end of the day, like, like economic activity rebounded much faster. And now the Fed is in a position where they're, they're worried about demand being too strong. Um, demand was too strong for a while, but demand has cooled a bit since, since that started, that was a major concern. And the big problem now is supply chains. Like it's, it's the supply side of the economy and the fed can only change interest rates in a way that affects demand. They cannot do anything about supply. Right. So they are faced with a a situation where they think inflation is too high and will stay too high. And so they need to do something, but the only thing they can do is lower demand to meet supply. Um, This is a problem, right? Because throwing people out of work, um, you know, to, because um, you've got COVID outbreaks in Shanghai factories is, or, you know, because Russia is no longer selling as much diesel fuel to Europe is not a great system. Right. Like, like that's, there's, there's no really, there's no real defense of that system. I don't think. Um, so that's the situation we're in right now for the most part. I mean, I think there's a little bit more nuance than I'm framing it as, but just, you know, to be as simple as possible, that's the situation we're in. We, we, we have supply disruptions and the fed is responding to those by rate hikes. Um, so yeah, um, in that, in that instance, basically what you're going to get is a recession. And if the Fed is successful in, in bringing down demand to match supply, we could see, you know, fairly significant drops in economic activity, um, that, that results in prices being more moderate. Um, and that lets them back off and sort of reach a more equilibrium, stable economy and a return to kind of stable economic growth, like we saw in 2017 to 2019. Um, but if we get to a point where, um, you know, there we're in a recession and supply side issues don't crop up, then the only thing they can do is keep raising rates. And like, that's just not going to help. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of a grim picture. Hopefully like things stabilize a bit. It is, it is always interesting for me to kind of listen to this stuff and 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 to listen to you talk about it, George, because uh, it a lot of the time when when we talk about the economy, when when we talk about uh, economic activity and employment, um, it, it's there are, there are a lot of reasons to get angry at people for the policies that they're that they're uh, deciding on and for the decisions that they make. Um, but it is good to like hear about it hear about like how those decisions are being made, even, even, even when you disagree with them, because uh, like why this is happening is, is also very important. Like why, like what is the thought process behind it? And I think that it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to hear uh, why that is and, and how that works. Um, I wanted to ask you about, there's an article today in the New York times, a recession alarm is ringing on wall street. 
It's about the bond market yield curve, which says has preceded every U.S. recession for the past half century. It is happening again. Can you explain uh, the yield curve and how, how, like, like what that what that basically means? Like, why that's such a such a big indicator? Yeah. Okay. So the yield curve refers to the Treasury yield curve. Um, so it's the yield, uh, as in like like the income you get every year relative to principal um, from bonds sold by the U.S. Treasury. These bonds are important because they are viewed as the least risky assets in the world, right? You, you, there is never any concern that the U.S. Treasury is not going to pay in a, on a timely manner um, principal and interest on the outstanding debt stock of the United States. So this is what's called a risk-free interest rate. Now, I'm going to put an asterisk on this. It's not technically risk-free, um, but for the for the broad purposes of this discussion, you know, as financial markets go, th- this is a risk-free rate. This is the bent. This you cannot get a lower risk rate than this. So, risk-free. Um, the Treasury curve tends to invert ahead of U.S. recessions, and the reason this happens is because markets look ahead and say, "Okay." Um, Interest rates right now are high. Short-term interest rates controlled by the Federal Reserve are high and rising. Um, and longer-term interest rates are not are, are sort of stable. And the Federal Reserve is continuing to tighten. We think it's going to tighten more. And now short-term rates are actually higher than um, rates over the long term. And the reason that is is because we think the Fed has raised rates unsustainably high and will have to cut soon. Um, and the Fed very rarely does that outside of recessions taking place. So when you see those short-term yields, like two years, three months, six months, a year, that kind of thing, when those short-term yields are very, very high relative to longer-term yields, say 10 years, 30 years, that's called a yield curve inversion because normally short-term yields are lower than long-term yields. The reason for this is that if you, you, you know, you're always going to charge someone less for short-term lending than longer-term lending, all else equal, because longer-term lending has more risk. You don't know what's going to happen over the interim, so you need a higher rate to compensate you, um, even against a risk-free borrower. And so typically, we have this nice upward-sloping yield curve where short-term rates are lower than long-term rates, and everyone's happy. When the opposite is true, when short-term rates are higher and long-term rates are lower, what's happened is the market has said, okay, rates are too high, they're not sustainable here. They're going to come back down. Short-term rates set by the Fed, they're too high. They're too high. They're going to come back down. So we, we like owning longer-term bonds more than short-term bonds. And so the yield curve is now inverted with short-term yields above long-term yields. And depending on how you look at this, this yield curve inversions, for instance, three-month tenure, have preceded every U.S. recession um, with no false positives since the 1960s. And so when the bond market does this, it is a big, big warning signal to policymakers. And um, yeah, for right now, you know, we haven't seen like absolutely locked in, in my opinion, but we're like 85% there um, that, that the bond market is signaling a recession. So basically where we're at is that this is almost certain to happen, uh, the recession, and, and, and people should uh, be getting ready for it. I, I, wanted to, I, I just want to ask you, kind of, I guess, maybe one more question here, um, uh, kind of based around that. But uh, the other day, maybe it was yesterday or the other day, uh, we were talking, and you had mentioned something like, uh, you know, this is one of the worst times to buy a house. And it seems like that's kind of connected 
Uh, can you explain how the real estate market is acting? Because I know that it's not acting the way that it was before the last, like before the Great Recession, where things just uh, kind of completely crashed. But it does seem like like it's cooled down a little bit. Um, is it that is it that rates are going up, but the prices are still high? Is is it is 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 it a, a supply issue? Um, what is it about the real estate market right now that, that is that is so difficult and and means that people should be kind of watching out? Yeah. So just a disclaimer: this is not financial advice. Uh, discuss, discuss with a financial professional and and do not take this you know as financial advice for you personally because everyone's situation is different. Generally, what I tell people about the housing market and you know. Uh, when we have a friend who's constantly badgering me for like, when should I buy a house? And I always tell him, look, like if you can afford the monthly payment without stressing about it, and if you know, you're not going to move anytime soon, then it doesn't matter what home prices do. Right. Um, in the U S since the global financial crisis, since the subprime crash, we've had a change to, um, a much safer housing market in terms of the quality of mortgages that are getting lent out. So prior to 2007 or 2008, um, basically there was a lot of private risk um, tied up uh, in housing values. Now the vast majority of that is, is um, funded by the government, the, the risk and the, the lending standards. So for instance, the amount of lending that's done, um, the income levels that support the debt, like um, all that sort of stuff, credit scores, that sort of stuff. The standards around that are much, much higher. So we're very unlikely to have a situation in the housing market like we did in 2007, 2008, 2009, where people were defaulting on mortgage loans and it was a massive credit blow up. And that sort of speaks to what I was saying earlier about this recession not being not likely to be very long or very deep because we don't have that sort of massive debt bubble underpinning it. Um, what, you know, the, the problem right now with the housing market is exactly what you said. Um, the housing prices have gone up really, really fast and interest rates have now surged as well. And so to maintain that same value, that that same amount of value in the housing market, like the same level of house prices, you need to use up ever larger monthly payments or or ever larger down payments to continue that that move upwards and or even to keep them where, where they are now because rates are rising almost literally every day. Um, so, you know, when I, when I said that this is a really rough time to be buying a house right now, what I mean is payments are very high, prices are very high and the outlook for prices is, is not great. Um, you know, again, if you are able to cover your mortgage comfortably out of your income, if you are not, you know, if you're, if you're using a traditional 30 year fixed rate mortgage, if you're happy where you live and you don't think you're going to move right away. Um, I don't think there's any reason that people shouldn't be buying houses um, because it's where you live. Like you should, you should spend time and, and money on a place that you like to live. And if that means buying a house right now, go for it. Um, what I would say though, is that like, if you're trying to speculate with the value of your primary residence, which I do not recommend anyone does, because again, it's where you live, it's your home. It's not just a speculative asset. Um, then yeah, this is a tough time because you're going to be paying a huge amount of your monthly income for mortgages relative to a few years ago. The, the, the monthly mortgage payment at a given price has gone up dramatically and prices have also gone up dramatically. So for context to buy the median existing home that was sold in June. So like the, if you take all the prices of existing homes in the U S in June, you find the middle of that distribution, the middle number that's in between all the other numbers, that number versus a year before 
the payment to cover that that number in June versus June of last year was up like 80% year over year, 70, 80% year over year, right? Just huge increases. And that's a function, again, of both home prices going up and mortgage rates going up. Um, if you're in a position where you have a house you want to buy and you're going to buy that house and you're, 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 it's not risky financially for you to cover that mortgage, then I don't think you should really care too much about this. But um, at the same time, because the increase has been so big, there are just not that many people in the United States right now that are in the same, you know, that same affordability picture that they were a year ago. Well, if, if, if anybody has any questions and they want to call in with any questions, uh, please go ahead. I guess uh, in the, in the meantime, um, maybe, maybe a good question would be for me, uh, would be, you know, for, for people who are considering, you know, moving their, uh, their, uh, their, their job, like, like getting, getting a different job, moving, moving their, uh, employment, you know, kind of doing a lateral or, or, or an up move, like, would you, would you say that this is kind of, uh, maybe a time to, I I guess what I'm trying to say, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of mangling this a little bit, but what I'm trying to say is that for a lot of the like past like year, uh, because of the employment situation, a lot of people were talking about kind of making lateral moves or, or trying to do something uh, that they would enjoy. And I'm not saying that people should not do that uh, with employment, but I'm just wondering, has the, uh, has the employment situation changed to the point uh, that now that might be a little more risky, a little more dangerous? Um, do you think that, that unemployment is going to surge? Or Because I know that you were talking about how you think it's just going to be a small and tight uh, recession, but... Um, but if it is going to uh, be, be, be kind of short, should people be kind of thinking about it in that way? And again, like I said, uh, phone lines are open. So anybody who wants to call in and ask a question, please feel free. But yeah, that's just kind of like a general musing question about the, the unemployment situation. Yeah, I think the thing that people don't think about enough in the labor market is... Oh, and again, sorry, so, sorry just to interrupt. Obviously, sure. this is not financial advice, as you said. Uh, this is just kind of just, just, a, just a general open question. Yeah, I, I think what people don't think about enough in the labor market is, will this company that I'm going to work for be here in five years, 10 years? I mean, maybe even one year, right? Um, you know, I, I, for, I think a lot of folks in, for instance, the recent boom in crypto assets, like I saw a lot of very talented, very earnest, very like hardworking people pile into crypto jobs. And... <sighs> You know, like if you're in your early 20s and, you know, it's, it's a high income and um, you're, you know, you've got opportunity to, to see some asset appreciation as well. Like that can be really, really great if you're in your early 30s like I am and you have a kid on the way like I do. That's a really different situation where, you know, this huge upside is not worth it for the downside risk. So what I would say is I think people in the labor market should think more about what they're comfortable with from like, as far as employer stability, like how likely is this employer going to be to conduct a round of layoffs in the relatively near future? Right. Um, Is this company going to be a going concern risk? Right. Um, And I I think those types of jobs are, or that type of thinking is, is way more useful than thinking about, 
um, you know, like whether a given role is is like a risk or not. Thinking about like, is this company going to be around? Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's what people should think about. I should also say that, like, while I think there's a lot of concern and rightfully so about about labor markets pulling back, I also think that there are pockets of the labor market that are still and that remain hot and are going to for a long time. I think, you know, what we would traditionally call sort of blue collar or low skill and low skill is not the right way to think about it. Um, but that's sort of the language you'll hear about it, like blue collar or what I prefer is low prerequisite. So stuff that you didn't have, that you're not going to sit in an air conditioned office. Um, you know, but again, not to mean that doesn't mean you don't have skills. Um, those sort of low prerequisite jobs, I think, are generally going to outperform for a while to come. And there's a bunch of demographic reasons for that. Um, immigration has been slashed. Uh, we also have a relatively top heavy um, age distribution in this country where a lot of people just cannot do those jobs um, at the age they're at. Um, and, you know, the younger people are college educated and, and really not interested in doing something with their hands all day. Like, that's not why I went to college. So why would I do that? You know, I, I think those types of jobs are going to be much better off um, in terms of stability, in terms of wage growth, in terms of that sort of thing for a long time to come. And that sort of goes beyond just the economic cycle. You know, it's interesting that, that uh, you know, talking about these, uh, these different jobs um, and, and, and again, uh, like I said, uh, I put this in the chat too. Q and A is open if you guys want to call in and ask questions. Um, just hit the little plus sign uh, there to, to to jump in. Um, I you know I, I I was one one field that I was thinking of was tech, which is kind of this kind of mashup, I guess, amalgamation uh, or whatever, however you say that word, um, of of blue and white collar, yeah. Uh, blue and white collar, where, where where you have a job, where a lot of the time you're sitting uh, in an office or or you're working from home, but you know it's, it's kind of it's it's a more uh, sedentary kind of uh, job. But a lot of time, like it doesn't require like a college education. I mean, I think that the the economy uh, that we live in now has just changed so much as far as like what skills are transferable and what skills are desirable uh, that you do see kind of a, just a, a difference in how. Uh, this stuff kind of plays out, and obviously there's there's construction as well. I mean, uh, yeah, like like you're saying, like low skilled, uh, definitely not the right way uh, to to put it. I think like high skill, but but low prerequisite uh, is 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 probably a, a closer way uh, to to define it. But I you know I was looking at at tech jobs uh, for for some work I was doing, and um, really just like amazed at how that sector. Even though there have been a lot of layoffs in some as, uh, some companies, some of the larger companies, the the sector itself is still uh, booming, and there are like more more jobs than there are people, um, and so like the, and that doesn't seem right. Like like the like the um, like this recession is going to have an effect on it. Like like that's going to have uh, it, that it's going to slow that down. Like that like like that need and and uh supply uh are definitely kind of like 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 that like that's not going to change um so it it i i guess it just kind of depends on like what part of the uh what part of the economy you're talking about right because like yeah. some some of these sectors are just going to maintain i think actually if i had to pick one company right now that was like 
worth following just because it's a great like proxy for the broader what's happening in society and where we are like globally. Um, if I had to pick one company and this is not, you know, this is a hot stock by the stock. I'm not saying that I'm just saying like, keep an eye on the company and see what they're doing and like follow what's going on with the company. Cause it's, it's illustrative of a lot of big trends, uh, is Ford. Um, so Ford is in the process of basically gutting their entire internal combustion engine lineup. They're they're I mean, they haven't said they're going to do this, but the writing is sort of on the wall that they're going to get out of traditional gasoline powered cars. And they're doing this because consumer demand for EVs is incredibly strong. The unit economics of EVs is way more attractive for Ford, like they're going to make more money building EVs. Um, but they have this big legacy sort of um, industrial apparatus that's geared towards the the auto market of the 1940s 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s um 2000s you know like internal combustion engines big dealership model so they're having to sort of navigate this transition um and you know the the headline that came out yesterday was that they're going to fire 8000 people traditionally when a big industrial company is firing thousands of people that is a really bad sign what ford is doing when they're saying we're going to lay off 8,000 people, they're saying we're, we're laying them off from our gasoline powered division because that's a dead end. It's not going to go anywhere. Those are, that's dead weight. And that will free up people and resources and cash to be used to build electric vehicles. So, you know, what, what we were, what you were saying on, I think makes a ton of sense. Like we're, we're in this, there's, there's, even if we have a relatively short negative cycle economically, the longer term trends um, for the US are, are really pretty positive, I think. And, you know, the structural stories that are going on, whether it's a transition away from carbon fuel sources, whether it's um, the sort of, uh, you know, thir- second echo of the baby boom with like people like my age, um, our age, really having kids, um, whether it's the fact that we're un- we've had undersupplied housing for the past decade. And so there's tons of room to run in housing long term in terms of building homes and and um, adding capacity there. I mean, the fact that the U.S. is essentially energy independent um, you know, on a net basis, um, whereas Europe or Japan or other countries aren't. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff happening um, for the U.S. and for individuals in this country that like, you know, as much bad economic news as there is short term and as much, you know, let's not even begin to talk about how horrible the political news is. There are reasons for optimism and there are longer term cycles that that are a sort of a different story from the short-term negativity which is very justified and very real right like like it it, you know we're talking i think mostly like in the abstract right like we're 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 taking a a bird's eye view of this stuff um and i and i think it's important to 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 say that and because i think that it just just so that people can understand it's like we're not saying um uh that you know things are like uh morally good or bad here we're just talking about this in like a very abstract way uh looking at the economy i do like i i think it is interesting though the way that um you're talking about how the the u.s is energy independent i mean the u.s by virtue of the way that the country where the country is located geographically having the ocean on either side having this huge amount of arable land uh in the center um, the, the economy of the U S is probably never going to be, uh, well, I mean, the, the economy of the U S is probably never going to be particularly under like major threat, or at least not as far as I can see, uh, in, in, in the, 
Uh, like politically, yes. Like there are like there are a lot of political issues uh, that that I could see ha- having having an effect on 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 the country. But the economy of the country, just just by virtue of 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 the land and and the and the consumption, uh, the, the the consumer class. I mean, it's just it 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 is it is such a unique um, situation here uh, that that it's that it's. It is much different, as you're saying, than than somewhere like Europe, where, you know, it's, it's like this is just like a. I mean, it's 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 a massive place, obviously, but it's a peninsula, yeah. right? It's like like you're like you're surround. Like there are a lot of you. You need to you have to rely on a lot of different parts of the world uh, to maintain that standard of living. While the U.S. doesn't really have like. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. has the, the U.S. Extent. because of an accident of history, right? The U.S. has like internalized colonialism as opposed to externalized colonialism, which you know, obviously, again, we're not making like a moral statement that that is a good thing and that you know, whatever. It's it's more like it's just a fact of where we are right now. Like the U.S. has lots of internal resources. Um, you know, in in concrete terms, natural gas right now in the U.S. costs like on on whole in futures markets is like eight bucks for per million British thermal units, which, you know, is kind of like a random abstract number, but for context in Europe right now, it's more like $44. So it's like five times, more than five times the price. Right. Um, you know, and that's what Japan pays as well. Other, other countries pay, you know, that sort of, so we have, we have really cheap energy here, um, which is, is very unusual right now, globally speaking. Um, the other thing, um, I was going to say too, um, the shoot i had oh i can't remember what it was now damn i lost it it was in there while i was talking about natural gas and now it's gone <laughs> oh yeah no 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 worries no worries um so so uh i i do think i do think that's probably a good place uh to wrap it up oh, nope of course that's always when we get the phone call so um yeah uh, go ahead caller um you are on Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just kind of wanted to let you get your own questions out of the way before I interrupted with a phone call because I thought you had some good questions, Owen. Um, I was just wondering if George, uh, hi, George, thanks for coming on. Appreciate your uh, input and talk today. Um, I was just wondering if uh, you could remark a little about the current situation in China with uh, like growing mortgage strike protests Um and like the kind of bubble they have going on there, especially with uh, the disaster around like Evergrande and all of that. Um, so if you could just um, like speak to that and what your thoughts are about the situation currently and how that could or, you know, play out. And um, if that could end up fueling a much bigger recession that than what you're currently thinking is on the table. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think I'm just trying to organize how I'm going to talk about this. Okay. So China has a develop, has like a growth model that's highly dependent on urbanizing people, like, like building buildings, rain, uh, trade, rain, uh, rail, uh, trains, um, you know, factories, like building stuff. Right. And the way they do this is, is, is complicated. It depends on the specific project you're talking about. But, but at the end of the day, it's the government mobilizing these resources. It's not, it's not the private sector. It's the government saying we want to do X and then go figure it out. Um, which, you know, isn't, I'm not saying that's a good or a bad model, but that's the model. And so supporting this network of economic activity is a large web of debt. Uh, China has enormous amounts of internal debt, uh, both mortgage debt and otherwise. Um, but the thing is, it's all internal. It's not really, there, there is overseas debt that's issued by 
Chinese real estate companies and development companies, but it's, it's relatively small scale. Um, and it doesn't, it's not like a critically important thing for the global economy, um, like, or for global financial markets. So I think the way to think about it is that the financial side, um, you know, blow ups in, for instance, Evergrande's domestic debt, uh, blow ups in mortgage debt owed uh, by people who haven't had their units delivered to them, which is where the mortgage strikes come from. Imagine you're 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 paying a mortgage on a on a, on a condo that isn't built yet. Like that would be really frustrating, right? Um, so that so people are doing mortgage strikes, and understandably so. Um, but all that's kind of internal to China. Right. Like like there, it's not like those a default on a Chinese mortgage owed to a Chinese bank is going to have a ripple effect to like a U.S. hedge fund or a U.S. lender. It doesn't really work that way. So, um, you know, where, where you worry about those kind of financial side things blowing up is that is that there are ripple effects elsewhere because China has had very tight capital controls for its whole um, experience as a, you know, as a as a as a growing country. There's really not that much offshore debt, um, and the offshore debt there is 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 relatively easy to cover, um, you know, on a national basis. So, I think while Chinese credit markets could get really weird really quickly, I don't think it's a problem for the rest of the world. Where you see linkages to the rest of the world is is two places. First, production of goods and services that are mostly almost entirely goods, I should say, that is then sent abroad. So, for instance, um, you know, building components for um, for, or, or completed manufacturers for export to the United States and, and to Europe. If we have a really big real estate meltdown in China, I don't see a reason. I mean, barring like basically something like a civil war, um, which is a super extreme scenario, I don't think anyone would forecast reasonably right now. Um, I don't see how a real estate slowdown and, and, and slowdown of economic activity in China leads to less production of overseas exports. I think it's the other way around. It actually would lead to more because you've got more resources to throw at producing stuff for other countries and selling abroad. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that's a problem. Where you would see a slowdown is consumption of raw commodities that are used to build um, buildings, right? And to, to use to urbanize China. Uh, and that actually might not be a bad thing at all. That might be a really good thing. And the reason for that is that we need a huge amount of raw commodities, especially copper, nickel, um, probably even stuff like iron ore and steel as well to decarbonize uh, global economies that have been built around the idea of carbonization, of, of carbonized energy. So, you know, if you want to electrify, if you want to upgrade the U.S. grid to the point where it can support tens of millions of EVs charging every day, you're going to need a lot of copper. You're going to need a lot of, of nickel and cobalt. Like you're going to need a lot of these these materials. You're probably going to need a lot of steel too to build transmission lines and you know all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, like I, I don't actually think that you know it's it's not good for China's economy. It might not be good for specific companies that operate in China. Um, it might not be good for you know specific um, like financial market trades, like for instance, being long Chinese yuan, but like, I, I don't see it as a giant global catastrophe. And in fact, I think you could spin it the other way and say, it's actually a, a positive thing. Cool. Uh, so George, do you have, do you have a chance? Do you have time for one more question here? I got, I got one in the chat that I wanted to ask you, but if you don't, that's totally fine. We can, we can wrap here. Yeah. Um... Okay, cool. So, uh, so Chris uh, asks uh, if, if you have any thoughts about the potential need for degrowth. Um, uh, degrowth. Yeah. So I, we should at some point 
like come back to degrowth as a concept and do like get another guest maybe and do like a whole podcast on degrowth because I yeah, could talk about this at length. <laughs> I think what I will say to to maybe hypothetically tease that concept and just and just sort of just you know say it and be done quick. I think degrowth is nuts. I think it's completely it's completely not viable from a political perspective either within the U.S. or globally. Um, I think that it misunderstands what economic activity is, um, and I think it because of that, it's just a, a, fun, a fundamentally unworkable concept. I, I think people that get interested in degrowth as a concept have really um, have all the right intentions. I just think they're misunderstanding how stuff works. Um, so I, you know, I'll leave it at that because uh, I could go on forever about it, but I, I don't think degrowth is an answer to anything. And actually, I think it creates a lot more problems in it than it solves. Um, and maybe we can come back and talk about it in full another time. No, no, definitely. I think I, I, I think what we'll do is we'll we'll have you on and an advocate for it, and we'll have we'll have a good discussion on that for sure. I, I can promise um, that I'll be so, I'll be better about that that discussion than uh, a certain Brazilian journalist was in in his uh, debate with with another Brazilian. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Well, I didn't say Brazilian journalist. I just so, said Brazil resident. <laughs> right. Right. Brazil resident. Yeah. I'm not. Uh, I'm 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 not worried about that. I'm ex- I'll expect a a, a, a polite and um, actual uh, uh, fact based conversation. So uh, so thanks, uh, George. Uh, you want to tell people where they can find you and find your work real quick, and then uh, and then I'll, I'll do my sign off stuff. Yeah. So I write uh, research for a company called Bespoke Investment Group. Our website's bespokepremium.com. Um, you can also find me on Twitter uh, at Perks, P-E-A-R-K-E-S. Uh, I occasionally do columns in Business Insider and uh, the Atlantic Council as well. So kind of all over the place, but uh, that's where you can find me. Great. All right. Well, thanks, uh, George, for joining. Um, if you are listening live or on the app, uh, please be sure to subscribe, follow, do all that kind of stuff. Um, also, if you're listening on replay on Spotify or uh, Apple Podcasts. Be sure to do all of the like, follow, all of that, etc. stuff there. Uh, we will see you guys next week. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us, and have a great weekend.